interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Tara Smith. Dr. Smith is a professor of philosophy at the University of Texas, where she holds the BB&T Chair for the Study of Objectivism and the Anthem Foundation Fellowship. She is also the author of several incredible books, including Ayn Rand's Normative Ethics, The Virtuous Egoist. And so I was very pleased to have a chance to sit down with her recently during a conference we were both speaking at to discuss the subject of happiness, what it is, how to achieve it, and why the welfare state is incompatible with the pursuit of happiness. So let's go ahead and get started. So usually on this show, we focus on the way in which the welfare state interferes with the pursuit of happiness and including the pursuit of person's financial well-being. And what I want to do today is spend a little time just focusing on the positive. What is happiness? Why should we be pursuing it? And then, you know, we can touch on things that can interfere with it. So, but why don't we just start with what is happiness and what are some common misconceptions about happiness? Okay. I mean, happiness is a complex concept. And I think the term happy or happiness legitimately can be used in some somewhat different ways, but it's important to recognize that they are different ways of using the term. And I think that, I think that what you're asking about and the kind of happiness that we're most concerned with encompasses a person's way of living as well as feeling. So let me say a little bit more about that. You know, in everyday conversation, we might say of a person things like, oh, he's happy, the Mets won last night. He's happy, the rain stopped, the courts are dry, he can play tennis, right? There are all sorts of day-to-day, relatively superficial things that make us glad or frustrated, again, in some relatively superficial ways. And it's fine to speak of a person as happy in that sense, but it's... That's a more transient, fluctuating, light sense about the mood one is in or, you know, sunny outlook. Really, happiness, you know, more deeply and when we think we want people to be happy, we don't just mean we want them to be smiling idiots all the time or their teams always to win or them to be, you know, bright-eyed because it's sunny out. We want them to be satisfied with their lives. And life satisfaction is actually a a term that philosophers will often use in thinking about happiness. And to be satisfied with your life, only certain kinds of things will allow a person to be genuinely satisfied with his life. Now, I know you could write a whole book on that. Um, Indeed, you did write a whole book on some of the essentials Uh, of what uh, a happy life consists mm -hmm. of. Can you just give kind of some a few touches of what you think are really important elements of a happy life. Sure. Um, and I will tie this actually to what I was just saying because in order to be satisfied with one's life, one has to be leading it in a certain way. Obviously, things can happen to you that you don't control. But we choose our actions on, on an ongoing basis. And pursuing values, things that you 
like that you care about um, a career in a certain area. Obviously, a romantic relationship with her, you know, with that person. Um, there are assorted values, lesser values, but important values like hobbies. Some people really enjoy boating or golfing or coin collecting or whatever it might be, or 1930s gangster movies. Right? I mean, we develop these interests, but going after your interests, and again, not just the hobby recreational ones, but going after work that you enjoy that is more than, well, gives me money to pay the rent or, you know, pay the car bills or something, right? Uh, I mean, we'll talk about a person feeling fulfilled in his work or not, or, you know, a rewarding job um, or not, and so on. So in terms of specifics, and again, let's tie this back to happiness is the way you will feel about your life when you're basically leading your life in the way that you should, when you're achieving values, objective values, and the more important values in your life are going to have the greatest ramifications on your happiness. I mean, it's great if I'm a tennis, you know, I like tennis in my spare time and I'm getting better. You know, gee, my serve is improving or I'm having better results, winning more. That's wonderful. But if at the core of my life, in terms of my, my career, my productive work, my most serious relationships, you know, with a husband or wife or other members of family or good friends. Um, if those core things aren't going well, correlatively, you're not going to be as happy. Your life isn't going to be in as good a condition, you know. So again, just getting back to thinking about what happiness is, think about what it is that we wish when, we, you know, there's the, you're going to the wedding, the, the newlyweds. Everybody wishes them all the happiness in the world. What you want is really twofold. You want the actual conditions of their lives to be good. You want them to prosper. You want them to thrive. And you want them to be aware of that. You want them to feel that. You want their sense of how their lives are going and of being alive on a regular basis to be positive. In them. So that's sort of the, the richer sense of happiness that I think is... So I want to look so, at one aspect of that then, and, and, and it was... Let me set it up this way. When you were describing a career, which obviously uh -huh. is, you're saying is a big part of it, uh -huh. a career that's not just about a paycheck, uh -huh. Uh -huh. what role should money have in the pursuit of happiness? And to, um, to borrow yeah. one of the cliches to put the right. question a different way, yeah. does money buy happiness? Good, interesting questions. Um, I love money. I could make more money probably doing some other work that I'd be able to do but enjoy less than I do as a philosophy professor. But I'm all for money. I love money. Um, but I realize that money... I'm going to say two things which at first will sound contradictory. Money can't buy happiness. It's not like you hand over a thousand or ten thousand or whatever the price is and voila, you know, they punch your ticket, they give you happiness. No, it's not that easy. It's not something you can just obtain externally. It's pre-made. It's pre-wrapped. You know, they have it on display in the, you know, it's a good store. It's a Tiffany or something, but it's, you know, you just, no. Now, at the same time, I've written a paper actually called Money Can Buy Happiness. And I use that title to be provocative. As I explain in the piece, I don't mean literally money buys happiness, but money. Money reflects material well-being, right? I mean, 
there's so many things we can say about money. You need in part to think back to just what money is, what money represents. And even at the most simple level, when you're first trying to understand the con truly the concept of money, not just, yeah, if I hand over that cash, that'll get me the coffee or whatever it might be. I mean, money is our way of storing up values that people have made. You know, valuable things, goods or services that people have created. Why? To serve our need. I mean, why have they created those things? Why do other people want the, uh, you know, the milk that you've gotten from the cows or the cheese or the shoes that you've made? You know, you're the cobbler making, whatever it might be. Why do we want the haircuts that you offer or the lawn cutting services and so on? Because we think our lives will be better having those things. Because we have needs, we have wants, material goods, as well as spiritual goods. They're, material goods are not the only goods in life, but they're an important part of what's necessary for us to flourish. Again, think of happiness in that sense of flourishing, thriving. We have bodies as well as minds, right? We are material beings as well as psychological and emotional and intellectual beings. And, you know, the, the shame is that people tend to curse money or condemn money. We are material beings with material needs. Money is a means of serving those needs. But money is also a means of serving our needs and thirsts for an enjoyable life, a pleasurable life. That is, I mean, I, I love this aspect of money. Just about everybody knows and understands the expression, time is money, right? If you waste time, money could have been made in that time. I mean, that's a general idea people have. But Ayn Rand had this wonderful, she didn't, she really explained this. I don't know that she used this way of putting it, but the reverse is also true. Money is time. Because money buys you options, Options about how you're going to spend your time. And all I mean here is, if I don't have any money in the bank, so I haven't saved up a thing, then basically I am living hand to mouth, day to day. Just laboring to get what I need to meet my needs for breakfast, for shoes, for shelter, you know, on an ongoing basis. But if I've got a little money, you know, a little money in the bank, so to speak, but I don't mean necessarily, you know, but even at the most primitive level, right? Oh, I've got a little money. Oh, I can take an hour off tonight. You know, I've got a little more money. Oh, I don't have to cook. I can just stop at Chipotle on the way home tonight and save my, myself, you know, cooking. I can spend $10 or something. The point is simply money gives you more options about how to spend your time so that I can spend it more to my liking, doing whatever it might be that I want to do that I think will enhance my happiness. So I think that's a really important way in which material well-being, which is represented in the money you have, uh, at least other things being equal, there are some qualifications you might put on that, it represents more options for you, greater opportunity to be happy, to well, somebody, experience to your... Somebody might say, aha. Aha. If money's so good, if it leads to a happy life, how in the world can you be, shouldn't I be for the welfare state? Because after all, it's giving me a bunch of money. Well, uh, a couple of things. One is, as I said, it is not literally true that money buys happiness. Money isn't intrinsically valuable. There's no value in that $5 bill or in that $500 bill, right? There's no value in that per se. What gives 
you know, a currency, uh, value is what it represents. What does it represent, at least ideally, an objectively valuable, an objectively valuable currency? What gives it value is the goods that have been produced for which it stands, right? You know, the $10 bill that actually stands for there's something valuable that somebody has made or, you know, some service that they've provided and so on. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. So, so, you know, so one thought is money doesn't, you know, in a direct cause and effect way, more money, more happiness, not by any means. We, I mean, there's a lot more that you can say in terms of the ways one obtains money are very important to how valuable it is. The way one uses money is very valuable. I mean, is very important to how valuable it actually is. You know, the misuse of money or the misappropriation of money, that, that isn't valuable, right? Um, the other thing, though, bringing this back even more directly to the welfare state is, whose money are we talking about? And, well, you know, shouldn't they just give me money? Because money can help me at least to get happiness. Shouldn't they give me money? I mean, you know, hold, hold the phone here, right? First of all, when we're talking about government, we're talking about forcing some people to give some of their money to others. We have to think about the fact that government, now we're not talking about voluntarily helping out others if you think, well, gee, I can help. I want to help. I'm in a position to help, as we sometimes do with other people, whether it be by giving money or giving other means of support, moral support, material support, right? I mean, one important thing to bear in mind once we start talking about the welfare state is that's the state, that's government, that's force. So by what right would the government be entitled to force some people to give up what's theirs if they don't want to do that? Um, and I think, you know, so often what happens when people think about the recipients in the welfare state or in other arrangements of that sort is they focus on the recipients, the apparent beneficiaries. And I say apparent in that way because I don't think big picture, long range, they really are benefiting from this kind of giveaway scheme. But the immediate thought is we so often focus on the apparent beneficiaries or recipients by completely excluding the other half of the equation, so to speak, the people who are made, forced by a welfare state, to give. What? A, let me go on a little bit more. What about their lives? What about their happiness? And how can we claim to be so concerned with human happiness if what we're essentially saying is, your happiness counts less because you have some more money than he does, and his counts more. I mean, whoa, whoa. Now we're not talking about human happiness. Now we're talking about manipulating people because... Some of us, in quote, think it better that those people be happy and that this is a way to get it. So there's so much wrong, I think, once we start going down the government route of welfare state. And, you know, and I wanted to bring it up, but I do want to cordon off a little bit the, the issue of the political right to pursue happiness. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm glad we brought it up, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a, a great topic to mm -hmm. dive into. Mm -hmm. um, to uh, now going back and refocusing on thinking about me as an individual wanting to pursue happiness. What does that involve? What does it not involve? Uh, and I really like that I you raised an idea that's interesting about whether a particular activity, such as gaining money, is a benefit 
is part of, is going to make me happy depends in part on how I get it and how I spend it. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think it, 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 people don't usually think in those terms. Although when you pause on it, you realize, yeah, you know, the, the, I, I turn down opportunities for money all the time. Zappos is famous. The, the, mm. uh, we're in Las Vegas, the headquarters of mm. the shoe company Zappos, yeah. and they have people come in and train with them for a week, and then they offer them uh, like ten thousand, seven thousand dollars, or some thousand dollars to leave the company. And so these people are presented with, here's free money and you can just walk and go on with your life. And most of them stay at Zappos because they would they value more working oh, at that kind of environment oh, than yeah, a quick yeah, buck. Yeah, yeah, and that's just one yeah. of many examples. Yeah, so no, can you yeah, elaborate? That's a good exa- I wasn't familiar with that aspect of Zappo. Good for them. I mean, good for those people. I, and I think it's probably good for them. I don't know their individual circumstances, but I hope they're making a good choice there. But... I think we're all familiar with people, and I alluded to myself a minute ago, and we're all familiar with people who might be able to gain more money doing something else or will sometimes turn down an actual offer. You could have a higher salary you know, if, we, if you accept this promotion or this, this other job, but the job responsibilities might be a little bit different and they might be less to your liking, less to your satisfaction, you know, less rewarding in some ways. There's a lot of value that we take simply from doing things, you know, being engaged in work, that we care about and that we enjoy. And again, money, the actual cash. You know, I think so often when we speak of money in this country and a lot of societies, unfortunately, what people really have in mind is cash, you know, the dollar bills and so on. That is so, that's the token of this concept of money, which does represent genuine value. Um, because people have produced stuff that then they want to trade, and I want some of you know the corn that you've raised and so on. But the point there is that the value comes from what is made, and it's being genuinely made, produced, as opposed to, for example, I mean, the harsh example is just stolen from somebody else. And you know, at a different level, many of us have had the experience Probably not many of your listeners have had the experience of stealing from other people. I hope not many have had that experience. But, you know, many of us, you sometimes receive a monetary gift or a little something out of the blue, right? Or whether it's actually money or something, you know? And that's very nice. Oh, I got an unexpected 50 or something, you know, like an unexpected gift. And that's very nice. But that value isn't the same. It's not the equivalent of the value of earning the, the same 50 or even earning less by earning it, by doing something that brings a value to life, right? Hey, I wrote a song. Let's say I'm musically inclined and I'm composing and that's pretty good. Huh. Other people think that's pretty good such that they're willing to pay me some money for, for listening to it or something like that. That's going to enrich me more than just the 50 or whatever the amount we might be talking about. You know, it's just as an aside, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts of entrepreneurs. and mm. I, Many of them tell this story, and I think I heard one recently with Mark Cuban telling a similar story, that the first time they like made money, they offered something for sale, and people gave them money for it. That was, you know, that 
it was only $10,000 or whatever, but it was the right. most meaningful $10,000 i have ever earned, even though they've gone on and earned yeah, billions. Right, right. And you hear the genuine meaning and yeah. enthusiasm in their voice, and I think well, it's I think, exactly what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, no, that about. does sound like what I'm talking about. Cause we, and I mean, whether it's mowing the lawn and making the first $10, or whatever it might be, whatever era we want to talk in terms of money, it's, it's producing. I mean, really, is what it's about. It's, oh, I have something of value that I can bring to this whole equation, to this whole society. But again, not for their sake. I enjoy doing this. I enjoy teaching philosophy or mowing lawns or cutting hair or whatever it might be. And yeah, and this is a valued thing by others. Wonderful. I mean, so much the better for all of us. I mean, in that sense, and I've never really thought about this before, but it's, I mean, I think there may even be a benevolence involved, you know, in honest trade of the sort that's based on yeah, and you bring something good to the table. That's wonderful. That's a that's a way of enhancing all that. So I want to ask a, a question, a little bit methodological, which is: it's very big today to say if you really are going to have an opinion on happiness, you have to have your happiness studies. And so we have some studies that show things that you sound like you'd agree with, which is lottery winners. If we look at them a little bit later, aren't any happier. On the other hand, they also say. What we found is that people aren't happier earning more than seventy thousand dollars, and so why don't we tax these people making a hundred thousand more and so on? Right, right. Uh, and we have studies to prove it. Yeah. Uh, can you say a little bit? I know it's a complex issue, yeah. but a little bit about how yeah. you think about the science of happiness. I think it's not very scientific at all, in the truly scientific sense. I think there's a lot of pseudoscience about happiness, unfortunately, these days. I'm glad that people in different fields, psychology, economics, or I think two of the prominent ones, um, I'm glad that they're giving more attention to happiness in recent years. It's, it's a really important, valuable subject, I think. Um, I'm extremely wary of most of the studies I've seen reported because their measures of happiness are... As far as I can tell, for the most part, extremely misguided and usually completely subjectivist. I mean, how you always want to ask one of these studies, and they're often reported even in magazine articles and so on. You'll get some of the um, some of the upshot. Okay. Usually, their their standards of what is happiness revert to asking for self reports that sometimes sound more like the kind of mood where you, you know, I was talking earlier about, well, I'm in a good mood because my team won last night or it's a sunny day or something. That's not the kind of happiness that we wish for the young couple, that we wish for the children that we have, that we wish, that we should wish for ourselves, right? That's not you want, want it, that is not what you want a life to be, just a series of, you know, smiley faces. Nor do you want it to be, I'm in a good mood, my life may be, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, but I don't know the difference. I'm oblivious. No, that's not what we, we want. Genuine thriving and flourishing for people. Well, I do think that most of the scientists of happiness these days don't really have a good understanding of what happiness is, of what happiness gives you and what it requires in life. Correspondingly, as they try to come up with ways of measuring it, they don't have a good understanding of it. Relatively, I don't think they have very good ways of sort of standards of measurement. So we get a lot of skewed 
ideas about happiness mixed together, plus different studies or using different standards, different timelines, different kinds of people. But again, I think the pseudoscience there is then projected and sometimes back to government issues like the welfare state where the science of happiness is used to justify government policy about who will nudge people in this direction, in other words, control them in certain ways such that they don't have full freedom of choice, freedom of action, because we, the experts, know they will be happier by some bogus measure of happiness um, you know, if they save more for retirement to eat more fruit and less pancakes or something at breakfast time. Um, so uh, you, though, and both of us, but have a different view of happiness in another sense, which is you can go into any bookstore and there's bookshelves on how to be happy, mm. but you view it as something profoundly moral, that being concerned with your own happiness is a moral issue. Why do you hold that kind of view? And what does it even mean to view yeah. happiness as a moral issue? Um, well, I mean, that's, again, a complicated question. And it's hard to know how to come And that one. by the sure. way, we will link to your books and oh, so on. Oh. So, And I encourage everybody to read them because these are not easy issues you can handle in 30 minutes. But yeah. if you can just give a flavor for sure. why is this something that we should be morally think, concerned with? I mean, really, that, that go, the answer to that goes to some of the most fundamental philosophical issues, such as our mortality, the fact that you have a certain amount of time and then it's over, and a life is a finite thing. Um, I mean, I don't think there's an afterlife, I don't think there's a God looking after us or anything like that, and if you're just going to be here for however many years, you know, 30 years, 88 years, whatever it might be, the only point of being here, I think, is, and, and it's in a certain sense it's not a point, but the only purpose it makes sense for a person to have is happiness, his happiness, enjoying it. I mean, that is what life is for. And notice, lots of people, including people who claim that they believe in an afterlife, and some of whom in some ways actually do believe in an afterlife, lots of people, you know, Talk to them after the funeral they've just attended. So often, what I mean, what are the kinds of things people remark after somebody has passed away, right? Oh, we need to enjoy more. We need to appreciate more, and so on. Yeah. I mean, in a certain sense, I'm saying that, but amped up big time. It's like, yeah. Happiness is what it's all about. That's why, when you know, I mean, again, just think of those models of you wish the young graduate or the young couple or the newborn, oh, all the happiness in the world. Because you think that is the most, that people have good lives, that they enjoy their lives, right? And, I mean, an important belief of mine that I've talked about sometimes, I don't know if I've written about this, but I know it's in some of my talks, is that happiness is simply not the kind of thing you can give to another person. However much you love that person and sincerely love that person and do for that person and want to do for that person. I mean, it could be the person or persons closest to you, you know, your most intimate lover in life, your, your child. You can't make another person happy. You can do a lot of things that help them, that help them materially and that help them morally or spiritually and so on. But you can't make another person achieve values or feel satisfaction feels satisfied with the way he is leading his life. And those are the keys, really, to happiness. So 
I see it as a moral issue because I think each person's life is an end in itself and the purpose of that life is, you know, if he wants his life is for him to achieve happiness. And I think the only way any of us can achieve happiness is by going after our own for ourselves. So, but again, really a full answer to that goes back to yeah, foundations I do. of values. And yeah, and I do want to amend something I said that I think mm. comes out in your answers. I said it's, in effect, a moral issue. But, I mean, our perspective is really, this is the moral issue. Your happiness is what it's all about morally. I definitely think that. No, I mean, I am, and in this, I definitely subscribe. Well, I I mean, yeah, I believe in Ayn Rand's rational egoism. Each man is an end in himself, and his life should be his highest goal. You know, his happiness. Now, she also believes, and I agree, Life, human life, when it's pursued the way it should be pursued, it's a completely a win-win proposition. It is not a matter of, I'll pursue more happiness and, God, you better But that's what out. people think. People think yes. the pursuit of happiness, it's, it's held in low regard in part because people think that's selfish. That it's this cutthroat thing or that it's selfish in the sense of that it's at others' expense. Not at all. Um, for, I mean, think about the self-interested things that people do on a daily basis, whether or not they subscribe, you know, would, would profess to be egoist or be horrified by the notion, right? A lot of people make an effort to maintain a healthy diet or to take their vitamins or to do their sit-ups or to go to the gym, right? Or to educate themselves in certain ways or even just, even if it's about limited things, you know, they want to get better at their jobs or running the restaurant that they're running or whatever it might be, right? We do all sorts of things on a daily basis that are done basically because we think, I'll be better off. And these things in no way take away from others' happiness or ability to be happiness, to be happy or to attain their well-being. Um, I mean, that's just one small reflection of happiness and the pursuit of happiness doesn't in any way entail and I hesitate to even say that version of selfishness because it is so not truly selfish, that would think that exploitation of others or taking advantage of others or injuring others is the way to advance my well-being. My colleague Ankar Gatte likes to tell people, think about you're giving advice to your kid Mm -hmm. about, I want you to live a happy life, which most Americans want their kids to do. Do is there is your next thought? I want you to be a Bernie Madoff or an Al Capone, or of course not. No, that's a nice so we example. Ha- we don't fully know, but we have an intuitive sense that that's not really what that's it looks like to get something for. out of life. Right, right. Yeah. We don't think, oh, you're so much better off if you could just get away with it. Yeah, you know, just get away with this. That's and not, not even just a criminal, even a jerk. You know, exactly. That's not- right, right. No, that's not what there is to be had in life. I yeah. mean, it's some of those notions just reveal such a. Thin, yeah, such a thin understanding of the good of life and the, the rewards available from the rational pursuit of egoism, the rational pursuit of, yeah, productive work, this is great, and if other people value it, that's great, and I can make money doing this too, and I can feel rewarded challenging myself to tackle these design problems in computers or philosophical problems in my work or whatever it might be. So for the final question, I know you're not a policy analyst and so on, but I want to get your thoughts on this, that um, usually when we think about what is a person who wants to be idealistic and 
politically, you know, a young person wants to make a difference in the world, the things they're going to do is, you know, crusade for the poor, for higher minimum wage or against, you know, the corporations that are allegedly destroying the earth. Um, how can we and how could I, in my work, in your, in your opinion, uh, supporting the free market, help get them to view fighting against something like the welfare state as idealistic, moral, noble? That's, again, that's a, a good, hard question in some ways. But I will say, if we think, you know, you mentioned these kinds of idealistic crusades for, you know, raising wages or this kind of thing. But if we think back to decades earlier, a lot of idealistic political campaigns or rallying cries were not simply about helping the, uh, you know, economically relatively impoverished, right? Think about fights for civil rights, or even women's rights, or a woman's right to vote in this country, or even go back to slavery, right? Or even go to other countries. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, often we have seen historically, just going back a little bit further, real moralistic crusades on behalf of the dignity of the individual. I mean, years ago in England, people started talking about the rights of Englishmen, you know, against the king, maybe in that case, or even think about people fighting for religious liberty in earlier centuries, right? And maybe it was just against the oppression. I mean, I'm not saying all of these people had perfectly justified correct views, right? But we're tired of these popes telling us what to do, whatever it might be. Again, my larger thought is... We have, historically, often very righteously and rightly championed as a moral good the individual and the dignity of the individual and his right to his own life, be he black, be she a woman, or whatever, right? That, I think, is what we need. I mean, that's part of what we need to rekindle, reignite. And I mean, the basic premise, certainly, of the ethics that I espouse is your life is yours. Don't apologize for that. You don't owe it to anybody else. That baby that's born in the hospital this morning is not born with an IOU around its neck to whoever else has a little bit more need than that baby's got, right? Um, your life is yours. You're entitled to live it for your own happiness. If you figure out how to do that, if you understand, again, this is something that I have written on, you know, inspired and in picking up on the work of Ayn Rand here, you know, if you can understand how to do that properly, it's actually the, the program for more of us really being happy and being able to, to cash in on the great opportunity this is. My guest today has been Tara Smith. Tara, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. I'm going to confine myself to one point. Happiness is an individual issue. It's up to each individual to think about the values and virtues that lead to happiness and then to pursue them if we want to live and to enjoy life. Other people cannot make us happy regardless of what they say, do, or give to us. Now this has two political implications. First, the government cannot make us happy. It can give us material things, but it cannot give us the character and overall state of well-being that make material things valuable. It can redistribute income, 
it cannot redistribute happiness. The government's only role in promoting happiness is to protect each of us from physical force so that we can pursue our unhappiness, so that we can make the choices and decisions that will lead us to happiness. And the second implication is that the government shouldn't try to make us happy. What makes a government a government is that it has the capacity to use physical force or compulsion, that it has a monopoly on physical force or compulsion. And when it uses that force not to protect our freedom to pursue happiness, but to, quote, make us happy, unquote, it can do so only by restricting our freedom to pursue happiness or by restricting the freedom of others. It can take our stuff and tell us what to do, or it can take other people's stuff and tell them what to do. Now, obviously, when we're the ones pushed around and looted, that is nothing for our happiness, uh, the nudge theory to the contrary notwithstanding. But it's no better when it's other people who are pushed around or looted. We benefit fundamentally from living in a free society where we're all free to pursue our own happiness, neither sacrificing ourselves to others nor others to ourselves. The welfare state destroys that and replaces it with a dog-eat-dog war of all against all, where everybody uses the political system to try to get special favors from everyone else. Even if we are part of the gang who wins some concrete battle, it ends up being a pyrrhic victory, since we all lose in a war of that sort. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.